Welcome to Rewrite Radio, the podcast from the Festival of Faith and Writing. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, the director of the festival, and I'll be your host. This is the place you can listen back to conversations we've had with writers and readers as we celebrated the written word together for over two decades. In each episode, you'll hear a session that took place at the festival. It might be a reading, an interview, a lecture, panel conversation, or something else entirely. Today's episode of Rewrite Radio features a wide-ranging conversation about memoir as a form of feminist testimony. This panel from the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing features Amy Julia Becker, Jessica Mesman Griffith, Catherine Willis Percy, Allison Hodgson, and Rachel Marie Stone talking about writing with honesty and candor, the subversive power of humor, and so much more. To help me introduce this session, I called up Sarah Bessie, popular blogger and author of the books Out of Sorts and Jesus Feminist. Not only was she a featured speaker at the 2016 festival, during this panel, she was in the audience taking notes. Well, thanks so much, Sarah, for joining us here today. Uh, Where did we catch you? Uh, Well, actually, right now I am down in my little um, writing office in uh, Abbotsford, British Columbia. And I use the term office very lightly. It's actually our guest room, and (laughs) I just happen to have a corner. I, I like to use the word office because I've worked almost exclusively at, pri- at public libraries when I do most of my writing, okay. and so I feel very excited to have a, a space where I have a door. <laughs> so. Doors are fantastic. It's true. Yeah, it, it is. It is. It is. <laughs> nice. Well, we're going to listen today to this really great panel that happened at the 2016 Festival that featured five really wonderful authors, Amy Julia Becker, Jessica Mesman Griffith, Allison Hodgson, and Catherine Willis Percy um, talking about um, memoir as feminist testimony, and that was um, moderated by Rachel Marie Stone. Um, and one of the things that struck me about this was we seem to be in an age of memoir in some sense, that there seems to be this thirst for personal narratives, but also a kind of the deep-seated suspicion of those narratives. And I wondered um, if you had any thoughts about that, about the way, uh, but why memoir itself is so popular. I think that at the at the core, I think the reason why people are interested in memoir is because we've always been interested in story. Mm. I mean, I think that uh, that story uh, telling that um, telling our stories, that understanding each other's stories, is really a profoundly human thing. You know, we're not existing within a vacuum. You know, I remember hearing once that almost all theology has its roots in autobiography, mm, right? And that's certainly true in my case. Um, and so, oftentimes, when I am writing theologically, I'm grounding that in my life because this is the reason, oftentimes, why we come to the conclusions we have come to, or why we have landed on what we think or know or believe or hope about God. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, those things are rooted in our place and in our time and in our context. And so I think that people are starting to realize that. I think it's also what connects us. Um, It makes us feel less alone. Mm -hmm. Um, It gets us outside of our own bubble Mm -hmm. as well. Um, One thing that I uh, committed to this past year in particular was reading stories outside my usual um, my my usual you know genre or life or even context and in particular I've I've made an effort to read more Indigenous women writers mm-hmm. and it has just changed so much of how I see history and how I see you know the stories that I have been given you know as a as a white Canadian you know mm-hmm. <laughs> or whatever else. Mm-hmm. So, I mean it it opens our eyes it opens up our hearts it opens us up to one another and then to God and I think that that's a, a really deeply powerful transformative sort of thing. You know, on the flip side, as you were saying, you know, there's there's that pushback or that um, even some sense of sneering, like it's not as, you know, highbrow perhaps as, you know, other other forms of, uh, of writing or whatever else. And I mean, uh, one of the things in this session that Catherine Willis Percy said that I think I wrote down in my I was in this session mm-hmm. or I was I was present at it and taking notes. Uh, I think I was tweeting most of my week, to be honest. But then one of the things that Catherine Willis Percy said in that session that really stood out to me was she said um, that testimony was often the first or only time that women were allowed to speak in the church. Mm. And that um, that disbelieving women is, the, 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 the act of disbelieving a woman is one of the favorite pastimes of the patriarchy. Oh, gosh. <laughs> right. 
And I mean, aside from the fact that like flames erupted on stage at that moment, I mean, it was just, you know, so, so lit. Uh (laughs) But there was this sense of, (laughs) right? There was this sense of, um, of people wanting to discredit it or wanting to say, well, that's not true or that's emotional or this and that. But, you know, one of the things that, um, that we see, I mean, and uh, Chamanda Agosi writes, uh, talks about this in her TED talk where she said, you know, we face this danger of the single story. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anybody's trying to set up their story as the only truth. Right. But oftentimes stories will push us outside of what we are comfortable with mm-hmm. or our way of understanding the world. Yeah. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that memoir does so incredibly beautifully and so incredibly well. And sometimes it pushes up against our prejudices. It pushes up against our presuppositions. Mm-hmm. Um, it pushes up against, you know, the things that we thought we had quite nicely settled into neat and tidy boxes and categories. Um, and that's a really powerful thing, but it's also disruptive to people. Well, thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today about this panel and also for being at the festival in 2016. Oh, I loved it. it was, I loved it. It's such a life, life-giving life space, and I really appreciated the invitation and the time I got to spend there and then a lot to me. All right. Bye, Sarah. All right. Bye. And now, Memoir as Feminist Testimony at the 2016 Festival of Faith and Writing. A note to our listeners. Due to technical difficulties, the audio is a bit rough for the first several minutes of this recording. Welcome. My name is Rachel Marie Stone, and we are gathered here to talk about the art and craft of memoir. Um, Each of our panelists, Amy Julia, Allison, Jessica, and Catherine have published and will publish memoirs. Some of you may have joined us because you have also written memoirs or because you hope to. Some of you may be here because you, like us, uh, simply love the genre. Um, In 1998, the writing teacher and writer in his own right, William Zinser, declared ours the age of the memoir. Um, A number of critics have credited the critical and popular success of Frank McCourt's Angela's Ashes in 1999 with helping jumpstart what we've seen as a kind of upsurge in memoir's popularity. Different um, trade journals have noted that nonfiction, personal nonfiction, is consistently selling well, and increasingly so. So there's the temptation to think that memoir is something new, but a quick glance uh, just into the history of personal narrative more generally reminds us that first-person writing is probably as old as humankind itself. Still, I think it's fair to say that there is a certain uh, thirst and hunger for memoir these days, and perhaps equally and oppositely, um, there's a certain suspicion of what the meaning of the popularity of memoir, what it means that memoir um, means so much to us, particularly, I think, when it's women who are writing it. Self-absorbed, solipsistic, self-indulgent. These are just some of the terms that are used to deride the memoir, uh, writes the personal essayist Leslie Jameson, whose empathy exams um, got a lot of attention last year. Jameson writes, who wants to hear another 30-year-old going on and on about her damage? (laughs) When Lauren Winner's memoir still came out some years back, I heard more than a few snide remarks about 30-something women writing multiple memoirs. True or not, there seems to be a perception that memoir is a peculiarly feminine phenomenon. And therefore, perhaps, one not to be taken too seriously. We live in a world where studies uh, bear out the strange truth that 
doctors and nurses, doctors and nurses, men and women, take women's pain, that is literal physical pain, less seriously than men's pain. We live in a world where more than two-thirds of sexual assaults are not reported. Why? Maybe because sometimes the pain of not having your story believed is less than the pain of keeping your suffering to yourself. This is nothing new. A woman's testimony meant nothing in, in the days when women were last at the cross and first at the empty tomb to greet the one who, as Dorothy Sayers wrote, quote, took their questions and arguments seriously, never mapped out their spear for, spear for them, and took them as he found them. This too is nothing new. But memoir as feminist testimony is as relevant for people of faith as ever. Particularly when, I think, and I think my panelists agree, particularly when memoir can run the very real risk of being self-indulgent, of reflecting self-absorption, and in, I think, particularly Christian circles, of having to fit a certain mold and move toward a certain, and dare I say, tidy end. So with that, let's turn to the panel, and why don't each of you introduce yourselves and tell us about the memoirs you have written or are writing, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Um, I'm Amy Julia Becker, and I've written a couple of books. Um, the one is called A Good and Perfect Gift, which is a spiritual memoir about our experience of having a daughter with Down syndrome and what it took to receive her as a gift, the transformation it took within me, uh, and essentially talking about a culture of perfection um, and how her birth uh, caused me to re-examine that and my role in it. And then I had a parenting memoir that came out about a year and a half ago called Small Talk, learning from my children about what matters most. I'm Jessica Messman Griffith. I wrote a memoir called Love and Salt about accompanying my best friend through her conversion to Catholicism and the subsequent death of her child. Um, and I'm working on another memoir right now about my childhood in Louisiana. I'm also running a group blog called Sick Pilgrim. That's for Christians who are struggling with spiritual darkness. I'm Catherine Willis Percy, and in 2012, I published my first book through Chalice Press, uh, Any Day a Beautiful Change, A Story of Faith and Family. And it was um, about the first uh, few years of my ministry um, and the birth of my daughter and the uh, relevance that all had uh, in my life at the time. Uh, and then my forthcoming book is Very Married, Field Notes on Love and Fidelity. And it is, as you might expect, about marriage. And um, I, there's certainly an element, uh, a significant element of memoir in both books, but um, they are also um, sort of memoir in, in conversation with biblical commentary and cultural uh, critique, engagement, reflection. So it's kind of a hybrid uh, memoir. Hi, I'm Allison Hodgson, and I have a newborn book. It just came out last week, and it's called The Pug List. And the subtitle is A Ridiculous Dog, A Family Who Lost Everything, and How They All Found Their Way Home. And in a nutshell, it's about how uh, adopting this troublesome little pug helped my family heal after an arsonist set our house on fire. And on the one hand, it sounds really light, but when someone sets your house on fire, it's not. And I like to think it's subversively wise. questions for us on sugarcoating and oversharing. All right, so the first question I, um, I'd love to hear your response to is, um, okay, so you, so you told us, you've, you've written a memoir about your daughter Penny, and who was born with Down syndrome, and it's about, a wonderful, it's a wonderful book about learning to kind of rethink perfection and to receive Penny with her extra chromosome and all as, as a good and perfect gift. And yet, um, in, in releasing that into the world um, to, to most to very positive reception, 
You have been accused by some readers of, of not telling enough of the hard parts, haven't you? And um, I wonder if you could tell us uh, about that. Um, and tell us, if you'd like, tell us about the book you're working on now and, and how you're facing down the challenges of um, running the risk of making it sound better than it is. Yeah, so um, with the book about Penny um, and about our family, I had the movement of that book is uh, this experience of coming to receive her as she is um, and not placing expectations that she be who I thought she needed to be, um, but really just receiving her as a gift from God and trusting that whatever that means, um, even if it does not in any way conform to what our culture would say is um, valuable and successful to receive her as such. What happens um, in the book, and it has happened in our life, is that in letting go of expectations, we were able to receive her and to recognize her incredible giftedness. And I was criticized because I think for some readers that felt like a swing from, you're gonna take her as she is and then you're gonna brag about her. Um, and yet, I think for other readers, it was a demonstration of the freedom that can come because there is, I think, a, a human truth to all of us that there is um, a brokenness in us and there is the image of God in us and there's a giftedness in all of us. And so um, I felt like it was really important to name, again, I need to let go of all of these expectations and not place them on my daughter, but I also need to expect God to be at work in her expect her true self to be real and vibrant and shine forth. So that was some of that criticism. And um, I think there's also criticism I've faced along the lines of writing about our daughter um, that I'm not telling the hard parts about having a child with Down syndrome. And those come from within the Down syndrome community and they also come from um, outside the Down syndrome community in terms of people who think, um, I've written a lot about prenatal testing and abortion and um, who think that it is false to tell such a good story about having a child with Down syndrome when that's not every person's story. And I have taken some of that to heart in trying to demonstrate that there is a spectrum of experiences for parents with children with disabilities, and yet also not to shy away from our very real experience, which is that we have a kid, and we love her, and we think she's great. Um, and I tell stories about her. Um, within that, though, I do have a rule of uh, whenever I'm writing about someone else, I think I have, it is my first and foremost responsibility to honor them and not just to tell a good story um, at their expense. And that's true for my children as well as for friends or anyone else in my life. And so I will not write a story about Penny or anyone else that I would not tell in their presence. Um, and if I'm not sure about that, I will ask permission, uh, even including my kids. And granted, she's 10, so she may or may not agree with herself 10 years from now about whether I should be allowed to tell some stories, but I, that is how I try to think about it. Um, I'm writing, working on a new book right now, a proposal right now that's a memoir about privilege and about um, uh, having lived a very privileged life in a variety of ways. And what's tempting in that story when it comes to the hard parts is to resolve it in a tidy way. Uh, I want there to be a narrative arc that lands in a very satisfying place and I don't have that, and I don't think I will have that, and I think that's actually some of the strength of the book, is to say, this is as we as a nation are not in a place where we have resolved this, and in fact, I hope, I think, we're opening up some questions and some dialogue that perhaps might one day lead, I don't think it will ever be a tidy resolution, but to at least some um, degree of healing and resolution, um, but yes, my, certainly my temptation in that um, project and in thinking about those things is to put a bow on it. And there's not a bow to put on it, and so that's gonna be one of the tensions for me in writing that is, is letting that stay hard. Um, and then the last thing I'll say about sugarcoating, and I think this is true of anyone, probably of anyone in general, but certainly writing about anyone who's in a marginalized position, so that might be related to disability or to race or um, ethnicity, but um, there's a danger of demonizing or glorifying people who are on the margins. Um, and I think essentially in both cases, that is to dehumanize whenever we demonize or glorify because it's not holding on to the um, wholeness of our humanity as what I've said earlier, both 
broken and gifted. Um, and so that's something I really try to do is not just to write a story about me or about my family or my daughter or my friends, but actually to demonstrate through this story the common humanity that we share. Um, and so I think that's where you could have a touchstone of anecdotes or of stories, but then you can build from that um, and from those particulars into a more general, hopeful but honest um, human experience. Right, and you said that to you, it, it's very it's very meaningful, of course, when parents of children with, with Down syndrome say to you, your book meant so much to me, but that in a way you feel, um, I don't want to say proudest, but that, that it's extremely meaningful when um, when you find that a good and perfect gift has had resonance with people um, just who, have, who maybe don't have the experience of disability in their immediate family. Um, but so your writing is obviously very personal. You're writing about prenatal testing. You're writing about your your children, your family, your 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 childhood. And um, I I do I do think of you as my um, uh, I should say that all of us here on the panel know each other um, fairly well as writers and as people. Um, and, and and Amy Julia is my representative New England. New Englander friend, and who I think has a keen sense of what constitutes like oversharing. Um, so, so Amy Julia, um, as our representative New Englander, <laughs> when when does memoir feel um, false or fault? When does it ring false, or when does it feel um, kind of faux confessional, if I may say it that way, to you? Um, so, a couple of thoughts on that. One is, I think. There is a temptation to resolve things, um, but there's also a temptation to tell a story before it has been resolved. And I actually think that's when I often feel like things are faux confessional. I, I had an eating disorder in high school, and I look back on how often I wanted to be on a panel to talk about eating disorders, and it was because I was still working it out, and it's like, okay, that was probably not helpful to me or to anyone else. Whereas now that that has been, I, I have some distance from it and I can see what was resolved in that, what wasn't, then I think I actually have something to say. So I do think that's one thing that happens in memoir where we are, um, in our culture, we have such an immediate culture right now, so you're tempted to write about something as soon as it happens. But I do think um, that stories like this often need time um, in order to get that this is not just me, you know, journaling in front of an audience, but actually um, having had some, done some work spiritually and again, kind of intellectually to think something through. Um, and then to see how does this individual story actually connect? And not to say that we're writing for the whole world, but how does it connect to a broader story in the context of our culture? I mean, A Good and Perfect Gift's a good example of that, of, um, having a culture of perfection that I was so embedded in and having this particular child come into my life and upend that, but my hope is always that it would um, help other people who are in that place where I was to actually consider those same themes, that the particular questions I'm asking are linked to a broader question. And again, I think that helps get away from that falseness and kind of faux confession that can happen. And then the last thing I would say is just that um, well, actually, sorry, two more things. One is uh, I think that r the craft of writing is important in that um, and making sure that there is a, a depth uh, to the writing so that you're actually defending the choices you make, whether it's like defending every adverb you use um, or whether it's defending like the particular stories that you're including because it can be self-indulgent. Like there are stories that I just love about our family that are totally irrelevant to anyone in this room. Um, and it's the same as like if somebody comes over to your house and you want to show them like every photo from your trip to Alaska, as opposed to being like, here's the one that captures the whole trip. And it's like, yeah, your best friend might have to sit through every single photo or like every story about your awesome child, but like your readers do not need to sit through every photo or every story. Um, and then the final thing I'll say, which I think is similar to that, is that I think there's a difference between writing something that's inspiring and writing something that's transformative. And I would hope to be um, careful about writing things that are inspiring uh, because I think they can be false and fall flat and not be translatable into someone else's life. And I'd rather write things that are talking about transformation, both personally and kind of as a window of hope for others. Thank you so much. So we're going to continue the conversation. Um,
with Jessica, Jessica Mesman Griffith. Um, Jessica, you have written, um, and we've talked about, um, the fact that Christian memoirs, we're sorry to say, Christian, Christian memoirs often disappoint you. Um, why is that? What is, what is it that is, um, you find missing from a lot of Christian memoirs? And we, and we are Christian memoirists here. I am a Christian memoirist. <laughs> we are among friends. It's a critique from within. Yeah. Um, um, but, but what's missing from a lot of Christian memoirs, and, and is there a better way? Like you said, I think Christian memoirs tend toward the tidy narrative. Um, and I feel it too. I feel the pressure to tell a certain story um, that follows a predictable Christian path of sin, redemption, resurrection, reform. And I, I, I'm more interested in what happens when your story doesn't reflect that experience. Is, is there a space in Christian memoir for the untidy story? for the writer who doesn't learn her lesson, for the writer who makes the wrong choice and who doesn't reform and doesn't resurrect. Uh, but she still loves Jesus, and she's still trying to understand her relationship with him. Um, I, want, I want to read the stories we might be afraid to tell in church. Memoir for me is, a, I kind of say it's a way to test theory against experience, a way to test theology against life. Um, it's like theoretical physics, where I'm, I'm seeking patterns and scribbling equations in my attempt at discovering a theory that will explain everything. And as a Christian, that search for the meaning of everything should always lead me back to one person. Um, and that might imply that being a career spiritual memoirist will be really boring because you always know where it's going. <laughs> but there are countless ways to get there um, and to get lost on the way. So I have absolutely no problem at all with authors writing multiple memoirs. <laughs> the story isn't over, and that's just a reflection of reality. Um, I'll come back to this in a second, but. I want to talk more about this theory of everything. Um, how do we describe a theory of everything that's actually a person, Jesus? Um, somehow when I'm, especially when I'm suffering, and I'm like a total cliche, tortured artist who writes more when I'm suffering, um, theology does not really serve me. Um, I'm a theology geek, I, you know, I read theology, but it, it doesn't serve um, in those moments of affliction. At some point, I have to test those theories against experience and tell stories about the person who I'm in relationship with, um, what it's like to be in that relationship, to find him, to lose him, to love him, to misunderstand him, and to hate him. So um, as far as women's memoir goes, I think it's only natural that my favorite memoirs have been written by women. Um, I don't really see memoir as a pink genre, more fitted to us than to men. Um, and most of us acknowledge that it was a man, St. Augustine, who came up with the whole idea anyway with the confessions. Um, and I've loved some memoirs written by men, uh, but I've noticed something about male memoir, and I'm gonna make tons of sweeping generalizations here, so just ignore me. Um, it tends to focus on the life of one man in the world. They tend towards the truly, narrowly introspective. And this can be really fascinating in the hands of an artist like Nabokov or a visionary like Thomas Merton. Um, Karl Ove Knausgaard wrote a six-volume Proustian memoir that is so internally focused that he spends an entire page describing his reaction to watching a tea bag change the color of the water in his mug. He even includes mmm <laughs> as he waits for it to steep. And I, have to, I loved him for it. I loved this defiant commitment to navel-gazing, to just <laughs> go for it. Um, but as women, as women writers, I've noticed that we tend to interpret ourselves in terms of relationship. And this is one of the reasons I love Elena Ferrante. Um, and she wrote novels. She wrote a series of books called the Neapolitan Novels, but they were autobiographical. They could have been labeled memoirs. Um, in those books, she tells the story of the world. She really does. It's epic, but it's her world. It's Naples. And it's all through the story of a relationship, her relationship with her best friend. 
Um, but even Nadia Bowles-Weber's book, Accidental Saints, is another example of this for me. It, for her, that's the story of her life, uh, distinguished by finding God in all the wrong people. So it's about relationship. Another favorite memoirist, Mary Carr. Um, you read Mary Carr and you get her story, but you get her story refracted by the stories of her mother, her sister, her daddy. You know her family as well as you know Mary, and you know Mary through her family. Um, so another gross overgeneralization. Men see themselves, or at least they think they do, right? Um, we see ourselves reflected in others. So when it comes to fleshing out the meaning of our lives and that theory of everything that can only be a person, Jesus, and our relationship with him, which is so often lived through our relationships with each other, however awful and disruptive, and um, oh, I think we might have an edge. No, sorry. So um, when memoirs disappoint me, it's usually because they've skipped that complexity. They've skipped the complex refracted stories and hurried to a definitive answer to a question that maybe I wasn't even asking. Um, the answers to our questions and the very questions that we ask are influenced by our specific milieus. Who, the complex interweaving of family and circumstance and history set in motion long before we came along. Um, we can only live the contours of one life. Ours. And I've heard that referred to as the problem of contingency by theologians. Um, Teresa of Avila said we're only privy to one heart, and that's our own. That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, I think you already alluded to this maybe a little bit, that, that you know a lot of memoirs are, are offering answers to questions that, I like this line, answer, offering questions to answer, uh, offering answers to questions that maybe we weren't even asking. Um, and yet I think, I know for myself, and I, and I think for you, that you, we, we feel like we, all of us, we, we learn a lot and gain a lot and are, and are helped by memoir. Um, and yet I think for, there's so many of us who would never put our nose into the self-help section or, or, you know, the like, but, you know, but live on and from and through um, a, a memoir as, as self-help in a lot of ways. So um, I'm wondering, Jess, um, what thoughts you might have on, on, what way, on in what way is memoir didactic or, or not? And should it be explicitly didactic, or is, or is that just a, a deadly sin and a no-go no zone in a memoir? Well, I think I, I love self-help. I read self-help and I read memoir, but I go to them for different reasons. Um, I think what a memoir does really well is it, it can offer counsel, um, and it can walk alongside the reader instead of getting in front of the reader. Allison and I were talking about this in conversation the other day. I'm not, I'm not stealing your line. I will not. But in reference to my book, Love and Salt, which is a collection of letters written back and forth between my friend and I, and you get to see that companionship and counsel on the page, but I think, um, between the two of us, but I think the reader also participates in it. And we are not preaching, we're not offering advice, but you're getting counsel from that relationship you form with us. So, um, that's how I see memoir. You know, it's it's not that it's never didactic. It's not that it never works that way. But it, it offers counsel, and not through definitive answers, but through experience. Um, because its intelligence is always going to be limited by the open frame of an ongoing story, one that's going to continue and unfold after you close the book. This isn't a novel. The world doesn't end when you close the cover. Um, and that's what makes us different from fiction writers. For me, what makes a memoir really exciting is that we don't know the end, really. We can't know the end. We can't kill our characters off, you know, even if we really want to. Um, I mean, I guess you could. That would be a good memoir. Um, but we have to stay within the boundaries of our lives and experience and relationships. And we have to make meaning from the stuff we've been given. And that meaning is going to change. And it's going to change as we write, if we're honest, you know. Memoir is woven into and from the fabric of our real lives. 
Um, so, you know, no, my memoir might not have any answers for you, and your memoir might not have any answers for me, but that doesn't mean your testimony won't speak to me. That doesn't mean you won't have words of confirmation or conviction or accompaniment or wisdom to offer me from telling me your story. Um, one more thing I wanted to say, this goes back to what I started with, is the writer Alan Jacobs has a really great book about memoir. It's called Looking Before and After, and it's about memoir as Christian testimony. Um, that was really helpful to me when I was thinking about publishing this book of letters, because, you know, what could possibly be more navel-gazing than two, you know, at the time we were late 20s women writing each other letters back and forth about our souls. I mean, we weren't famous. Who would ever want to read this? But we read this book by Alan Jacobs, and it really inspired us. Um, because he's really encouraging us to tell our stories without shame for the benefit of the community. And he says that as people of faith, the stories of our lives will necessarily tell the story of our path to God. And um, writing memoir, so I want to say it's not inherently feminine, but it is inherently spiritual. Um, and what I, I love about Jacobs is that he doesn't restrict conversion to a single moment of revelation. So again, another great comfort to career memoirists out there. Like, you're just going to keep having those conversions. Conversion's lifelong. You're always going to have a story to tell. Um, but he says, actually, it's one of the greatest dangers for any Christian, not just a writer, to assume that at any point in your life, your journey is over and that you know the answers. Um, because it's only too likely that you've answered wrong or that the answer was right then for a time, but it's wrong now, or that you asked the wrong questions. Um, so Jacob says, we're always running the risk of the twin dangers of presumption and despair. And we make our way through those dangers by practicing the virtue of hope, by learning and relearning that our stories are not finished, that we're still on our way. So that, to me, is a real nobility of memoir, in the writing of it and in the reading of memoirs. When we tell the stories of our particular ways to God, we tend the virtue of hope in each other. We must, Jacob says, my last quote, I promise, learn to think of our lives as stories that move along recognizable paths, paths followed by our predecessors and our contemporaries so that we will be better able to see changes in our roads as continuations rather than detours or dead ends. So by sharing our own stories, we show each other the infinite and wildly various forms Christian life can take. It's not always tidy. We make a gift of our lives, our sorrows, our failures, our bad choices, our strengths to each other. And we make a relationship with Jesus less abstract. We move it from theory to experience. That's beautiful. I think you've articulated so beautifully um, what it is maybe that draws us to memoir, that it's, it's spiritual companionship um, in a lot of ways. So I thank you for that. And we're going to talk more about this question of testimony and, and bearing witness and what that means. So with that, we are turning to Catherine, our representative clergywoman on the panel. And um, Catherine, you have done some investigation into the root meanings of, of, the, of the word testimony. And um, it turns out uh, that the etymologies speak to the gendered nature of, of testimony and of bearing witness. Um, so could you, could you speak a little bit about uh, gen gender in memoir? Um, how is memoir, or, or how can memoir be a feminist act? Sure. Um, well, I have been interested in testimony for some time now, ever since I attended a preaching conference uh, for young clergywomen led by Anna Carter Florence. She is a pre preaching professor and the author of Preaching as Testimony. And that might not sound germane to the conversation, but I assure you it is. Um, she defines testimony in the classical sense. We tell what we have seen and heard, and we confess what we believe about it. So she also provides the etymology for the word, which um, I find hilarious. Testimony, the word witness uh, from which it comes, is derived from the Latin testis, a witness who testifies or swears on his virility, literally his <laughs> testes, as proof of honesty. The older Latin, I know, right? 
That older Latin was later absorbed into the Greek word um, for martyr, uh, who swears on his or her life. So eventually these words come to mean remembering and telling the truth. And so she writes, in the most literal and corporeal sense, testimony is passionate truth-telling. So if I'm reading this right, I think that what Anna Carter Florence is all saying is that we are all ballsy women. <laughs> Woo! I don't know if you're allowed to say balls at the Festival of Faith and Writing, but I just did. Amen, sister. <laughs> Preach. But more seriously, there's obviously great resonance here. As a feminist theologian, Florence is interested in testimony because it's the primary and sometimes the only way that women's voices and stories have been heard throughout church history. So testimony, she writes, testimony was and still is a practice of the church open to all believers as a means of deepening faith in themselves and others through the passionate witness of life and expression. And testimony, she writes, seems to be most alive among marginalized communities. So this is to say that for all the centuries that women were not authorized to preach, they were preaching anyway. It was just called testimony. Now, I know we're here to talk about memoir, not preaching, but there are genres that have some overlap in my work. And I think that some of what can be said about one can be applied to the other. So testimony in the form of memoir is one avenue in which women's voices are heard. And just as testimony has been afforded less respect historically than the proclamation of the word from the pulpit, memoir, in many circles, has less gravitas than works of theology. And I haven't conducted any formal research on this, but I have noted anecdotally that men's voices still do tend to be more prevalent in theology and women's voices more common in memoir and spiritual life, the you know, soft genres within the sphere of Christian writing. And there are no doubt excellent memoirs by men. I think a lot of people do subconsciously think of it as a pink collar genre. So the question why women are so drawn to reading and writing memoir, um, I think the memoirist doesn't need to be given permission by the church to tell what she has seen or experienced. And she doesn't need permission from the church to tell what she believes about it. She is fully authorized to tell her story because it's that, it's her story, she owns it. And now the tricky thing about testimony is that there's no guarantee that those who hear or read it will believe it. This is why those who are bearing testimony historically have had to swear on Bible or apparently balls. <laughs> so women who bear testimony take a risk that their stories will not be believed. And this is nothing new. Disbelieving women is a favorite pastime of the patriarchy, but um, the memoirist testifies anyway. The memoirist tells the truth passionately, and I hope that the Christian memoir mem memoirist, oh, you can't say that word three times, memoirist. I hope that um, she also points to the truth of the gospel passionately as she contemplates her life in context of faith and discipleship. Thank you so much. Um, so I, I was wondering if you could maybe tell us, um, and this is, we're kind of touching back on some of these uh, themes, um, vulnerability and faux vulnerability, but um, I'd love it if you could tell us about uh, your upcoming memoir, which is coming this summer, is that correct? September. September, okay, um, which has some tricky bits that are leaving you feeling vulnerable. Um, and I think, um, maybe you agree or disagree, but I think we're in, in, in some ways we are in a cultural moment that um, like really applauds people for, for being vulnerable and raw and um, you know, just telling it all. And hey, here are the messy bedrooms of my children and I don't care, um, right? So, um, Except they're so, never really that messy. <laughs> right, saying, but, and, then, and then the internet says, go you for being so brave and raw. Um, so I think, um, so I think, and, and some of we've we've had conversations about this. It's almost like the the praise of vulnerability, which I I think is a really good thing in 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 the um, in the orthodox Brene Brown sense. Um, I think there is also such a thing as as faux vulnerability. Um, okay, so there's this phenomenon. Why do you feel like it's important to tell your story, Catherine, tricky bits and all? And, and, and what are some of the maybe full vulnerability pitfalls you've had to kind of uh, avoid? 
Yes, um, well the stories that I include in Very Married are there for a reason, um, and I set out to tell them in a way that is honest and forthcoming, but also discreet. And discretion, I think, is a dying art these days, um, especially with the valorization of vulnerability in writing. Um, Brene Brown, you beat me to, I mean, how are we not gonna talk about Brene Brown if we're talking about vulnerability? Um, quote, vulnerability is bankrupt on his own terms. When people move from being vulnerable to using vulnerability, to deal with unmet needs, get attention, or engage in the shock and awe behaviors that are so commonplace in today's culture. So even mm -hmm. Brene knows that vulnerability is, is, um, can be problematic. That's why orthodox Brene. I'm saying yeah. orthodox, orthodox Brene, Brene is, is, yes. is, is cool. So I do share some tricky bits that make um, me feel extraordinarily vulnerable. Um, and I experienced firsthand that people really do respond to vaguely scandalous confessions in writing. Um, the Christian Century essay that then went on to net me a book contract was about having experienced a crush on a friend, and it went viral in a way that nothing I have ever written before has. Um, but I hope that the power of that piece was not actually in the confessed temptation, but um, that I walked away from it and at a safe distance confessed my belief in the glory of covenant and the sacredness of vows. So um, frankly, I think what people found more surprising is that... Um, not that I had uh, the crush, but that I immediately told my husband. So um, I guess for me, the question about any given tricky bit is this, is it redemptive? If testimony is sharing what we have witnessed and telling what we believe about it, does the content of my story ultimately direct the reader not to me, but to the movement of God in my life? So I do sacrifice a portion of my pride and privacy in hopes that my testimony can participate in the work of the Holy Spirit and encourage others to practice fidelity, to honor covenants, to be people of integrity. So I think sometimes in some places when um, Jessica speaks of that, um, sometimes when you see feel like a memoir is getting too moralistic, and I, 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 um, I too cringe at that, and yet I also think there are ways to, to do that and um, in, in, to use memoir in some positive and transformative. I guess maybe uh, what Amy Julia said about um, transformative. Um, not, we, we like the transformative moral, not necessarily just to be inspired. Um, so uh, one more thing. Um, I have witnessed and participated sometimes in that vulnerability script, which uh, as Rachel Marie said, uh, sometimes the, the internet or anybody, you know, they, they celebrate and applaud when, when the writer does something vulnerable. And then it's the writer's job then in this script is um, to sort of swoon about how desperately vulnerable they feel. And instead of martyrs, we have this weird literary martyrdom complex. Um, so memoirists, especially female writers, often project a certain sheepishness, um, whether it's you know authentic sheepishness or sort of following the script. Um, and I, I feel very grateful that I, I think I got some of that out of my system last year when the first essay was published. Um, there are certainly other chapters of Very Married that also feel very vulnerable to me, but I no longer have the energy to play by that script, to be um, self-deprecating as a means of sort of apologizing for taking up ink and taking up space. Mm -hmm. um, the fact of the matter is right now, I feel really freaking brave I feel like I've written a damn fine book that is good because I've written with honesty and integrity and a profound sense of purpose. So I'm experiencing this unprecedented confidence. If anybody who knows me like knows that I can like do self-loathing really, really well. And it, but this, this feels very sacred. And um, now I've never been part of a charismatic tradition. So this is uh, speaking a spiritual language that is not native to me. But in some of those traditions where testimony is practiced, there's the understanding that one can receive an anointing of the Holy Spirit, a sort of sense of, of um, the Holy Spirit nodding at what is being shared. And I feel like I am receiving an anointing of the Holy Spirit. So that's my, um, uh, and to make that claim, I think, uh, thank you, um, it makes me feel vulnerable all over again. I mean, as a mainline Christian, that's very unorthodox to claim that I have um, re received an anointing of the Holy Spirit but also as a woman, a woman, because, I mean, it's ballsy. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. I think a common thread that I'm hearing is that, you know, in some ways, 
or a, an observation from listening to, to the three of you so far, is that in some ways, uh, memoir done well is the, is the opposite of navel-gazing, and it's, and it's a craft practice. It's, it's bearing witness in a way that serves others. So, um, yeah, it's really, it's kind of the opposite. Done well is the opposite of narcissism. I think what you, what you said about your story pointing to the movement of God in your life, yes. not necessarily about exposing all of you, but tracing the movement of God, I, I love that, I lo and I, that's what I feel like God moves in every life. God moves in the fallen and the sinner and the unrepentant. It's all, so that's why memoirs from all over the map are so beautiful. So I just love that, I wanted to comment on it. So Allison, Allison, um, your memoir, the, the Pug List, just came out, um, and Oliver is so cute. Just had to say. So anyone who's read it so far, and I hope there are some, and anyone who knows your writing or you um, knows that you're just frankly hilarious. Um, yet your book is um, also about a horrible tragedy. Um, so, and, and I'm laughing as I say tragedy because I'm uncomfortable. She's so funny. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it was tragic. <laughs> uh, so t tell us, Allison. Um, about the role that humor plays in, in, in your writing. Um, I was just saying to someone that it is in the handbook of, um, mom's Jewish, it's, it's, it's written in the handbook uh, how to survive as a hated minority, that, that you have to make tragedy, tra jokes about tragedies, so I, I feel a, a, a real love for, for what you're doing, and I, I want you to tell us about the redemptive, subversive motivation in, in getting us to laugh in the face of really tough stuff. Well, um, Bob who Newhart, who I love. Um, Me too. He says, if you're able to take the stage and make people laugh, then you must oblige. And that's why he's still, he's in his 80s, and he's still traveling and performing, because he feels it's a high calling. And historically, Christians have devalued humor as not serious and we're in a very serious business. And I disagree. And I'll get back to historically because now it's the age of the comedian. Like everybody's a joker, you know, whether or not they're funny. But uh, <laughs> to my regret. But um, what was I saying? Uh, I think humor is so important because if you want to go in the deep waters, which that's where I want to go, and when you go deep, it's hard to breathe, and things get dark and strange, and humor is a way of, it's, it pulls you up, and it pulls you out, and you can exhale and just relax and, and have relief of tension. And so it serves a really uh, healthy, rhythm in a story, but also to be funny, it means you're looking at the reality of the situation and you're seeing the absurdities in all of life, but especially in difficult situations. And so to be funny, you have to be ruthlessly honest. And I think that's a very serious business. And and it's just fun. Everybody feels better when they laugh. And who wants to read about somebody setting my house on fire and rage and post-traumatic stress? I mean, although we all get to enter into that story about how you survive and endure when God doesn't feel close. And that is really the question of my memoir is where is God in our suffering? And humor helped me endure. And I think it helps the reader endure my story as well. Uh, <laughs> So yes, I think it's, it's, if you can do it, and it's okay if you can't, don't force it. And yeah, I don't, don't mean to don't be exclusive, <laughs> you know, exclusive, but you know if you're funny or not. And if you're not, don't, don't try it at home, guys. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just going to throw a question out there. Would you be willing to maybe share a, a little bit of funny tragedy with us right now? Funny tragedy? Well, no. I mean, just give an example of what you are talking about. Like, how do, how, how do you bring the levity? Okay, all right. How do so you bring the levity? The morning of our fire, <clears throat> I've just, the alarms go off. I've just come to terms with my house is on fire because I saw, finally saw the flames. I'm running across the road. I'm on the edge of our 
um, our property because the power lines, as soon as we get out of the house, the power lines are on fire because fire moves quickly. And if you add an accelerant, which the arsonist did, it moves incredibly fast. And so I'm literally in fight or flight with my family. We're on the edge of the road and we want to pass and lights come up over the hill in front of our house. And I think, I look at my husband because we have to stop. And if you've ever actually, I mean, we, we weren't fleeing for our lives, but your brain thinks it is. If you've ever actually been flight, you don't want to put a brake on it, but you can't get hit by a car after you've escaped your burning house. You just, you can't. So we stop and I look at my husband like, are you freaking kidding me? And then because the car comes to a stop and then this young man staggers out. And I'm not thinking arsonist, but you know, there he is. And he's taking pictures and my husband and I look at each other and it's like unbelievable. So we start to run across the road and now I know the arsonist, we make eye contact and he says to me, is this your house? And I say, You know, and then we keep run running. And later, later I joke about it before I put together, hey guy, what was that guy doing back at the house taking pictures? Um, <laughs> it, uh, you know, we joke about, I, I tell the story about this clueless guy, this clueless kid, and we're like, no, no, it's the neighbor's house, and we're getting the kids up to watch, you know? And um, <laughs> there was something else. And then the final one, ironically, was, uh, no, we just set it on fire and we're fleeing the scene. You know, get out of the way. Uh, and um, so that's an example. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, was it a struggle for you to decide what to share and what to leave out? Or um, do you want to speak to that? Yes, I do. I have a story to tell. Um, I think anything you put in a memoir, it has, well, any book, it has to serve the story. And I think what's so challenging about memoir is everything is so important to us. And so that it is hard to know what, like these details, because I've told the story in different ways and um, I've done the moth and that's some things that are very important Ooh. to me. One it doesn't matter, you know? And so it's like, you can just leave things out and it doesn't matter. So in the book, you just have to figure out what serves the story. Like, what am I, what am I trying to say here? So this is so important to me, it doesn't matter. And so I have an example that um, years and years ago, I was in Japan and um, I had made friends with this uh, missionary. She was in her 60s. And she, she lived in Japan for 40 years. And she was this just really funny, wry sort of personality. And this family had come and served her um, and her husband and their um, mission. And I, she made, she didn't say much about him, but I got the feeling this family who'd come as a family, they were quite wealthy and they'd served and that was really big to them. And she was a little bit like, yeah, we love them. They came, they helped, you know? Well, there, and the reason they came up is there was a Christmas card. And this was back in the olden days when if you sent a picture, it was one picture and it was on photo paper and then it had like ringing bells or if you're a Christian, you know, the nativity, a scene of the, maybe the wise men. And, um, and that was fancy. And this was a triptych. And there were at least a dozen pictures. And I'm just kind of taking it in. And I'm not going to say anything, which is rare for me, but I didn't. And um, I looked at her. I looked at it, and I looked at her. And she looked at me, and she just kind of shrugged her shoulders. And then she said, they don't understand. Nobody really cares. And it was one of those like, teachable moments where, honestly, I do think it was the Holy Spirit through this woman, eh, you know, they just don't understand. No one really cares. And I thought of anyone who ought to care, it's this person who genuinely loves them and is a Christian missionary in her 60s. And she's like, eh, whatever, you know. And that was a teachable moment for me. And I think we've all read memoirs that are little more than braggy Christmas cards and Christmas letters. And it's like, really guy, you had to give me a dozen pictures? Like one freaking picture was enough. So there's that. That's been in the back of my head for the last 20 years is 
am I writing a braggy Christmas letter? Is that all this is? And then I think that what can serve that, what Jessica referred to earlier, is what I talk about, is the position of the memoirist. And the best books, fiction or non, is where you open the page and the writer picks you up. And it's like, they, and they, take, they, they just take off and they're flying through this story. And you're on their back and you're peeking over and you see it all, but they're carrying you. And then at the end, you know, it's, it's this, you know, whatever the story is, you know, I can't tell you what the flight is, but they carry you through it. And then at the end, they land and they set you down. And you know you've read a book like that where it's like you got taken away and you forgot everything except that story. And you forgot the narrator themselves because you were so into the story. And that is so satisfying. Well... That's the best sort of writing, especially in a memoir. And it's, it is hard because it is your life and you are showing yourselves and there's that fine line between the full vulnerability and then looking too good or telling the story well. And I do feel like if the position is your life is the material, but you're traveling with the reader, you're traveling beside them, whether they're flying, you know, you're flying them on your back or you're walking beside them and you're looking at. And so then another story I'd like to tell briefly is um, when, I was, when I was a young woman, I went to Alaska and there was a young man and I had a crush on him and he was super crushing on me. And we were in front of the ocean and it's Alaska, you know. If, has anyone been to Alaska? Like picture the most beautiful place, majestic amazing, just wondrous beauty, big sky, amazing. So we stop by the ocean, we take a little day trip, and we stop by the ocean, and I'm picking up a rock, and um, I just had this moment where I just became so aware, and this young man who was crushing on me looked at me, and I'm picking up a rock, and, and I just really had a sense of just how beautiful I was, and... <laughs> And it was like, and only later, I didn't realize it at the moment, because I could just feel him just adoring me. And also, I mean, it's like Alaska was made for me, you know? Like, I was the jewel in its setting, and, and Alaska was just the backdrop for me. And I think we've also all read memoirs that are little more than pretty girls preening. And, you know, and it's not, look at my life. Did you say pretty girls preening? Pretty girls preening. <laughs> you don't want to do that. And, and I think we've all read books where it's, it's not, okay, look. Like, there are moments in my book, rare, but they exist where I rise to the occasion. You know, I had three kids. We were all home and in bed. It leaves a mark. We were traumatized. And there were rare moments where... I rise to the occasion. And you could read that book and get the sense that I'm a good mother. And, <laughs> but you know, I'm just, but it wasn't about me. I'm trying to serve the story because I have to tell you something. And the fact that I'm being a good mother in that moment, it's not about me, it's about the story. That was my aim. And um, it wasn't me, you know, look at me, being a loving mother good wife, a devoted friend, a godly woman, you know? Look at me being beautiful. Look at me being brave, vulnerable, raw. You know, like just, just check your writing. Just be like, is, am I, where am I focusing? Because it's weird because you're focusing on your own life and occasionally, you do look good occasionally. <laughs> you're beautiful and brave, you know? But it's just, is this story serving the bigger story? And, and just watch your tone and watch your position. I want to thank all four of you for giving us just a wonderful, I think, nuanced and varied and also um, amazingly um, coherent and resonant, I think, um, idea of, of the complexity of the memoir and the meaning of the memoir. Thank you Thank all you. for being here. Thank you. Hearing us.
Many thanks to Amy Julia Becker, Jessica Mesman-Griffith, Catherine Willis-Pershey, Alison Hodgson, and Rachel Marie Stone. You can find links to their work in the description of this episode of Rewrite Radio. Thanks also to Sarah Bessie. You can learn more about Sarah's work and read her blog at sarahbessie.com. Catch her tweeting from the festival and elsewhere at Sarah Bessie. Rewrite Radio is recorded at the Festival of Faith and Writing on the campus of Calvin College and produced by the Calvin Center for Faith and Writing. Our team includes John Brown, Don Hedinga, Jennifer Holberg, Scott Jose, Bob Hudson, Luke Latt, Deb Reinstra, Amanda Smart, Sarah Turnage, Debbie Visser, and James Wart. You can learn more about the Festival of Faith and Writing at festival.calvin.edu. And if you're into the social media, be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what we're doing here on Rewrite Radio, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps other people discover the show, and we are so grateful. Also, we've got 26 years of festival recordings to explore here on Rewrite Radio. And if you've been at some of these festivals and have a favorite session or two that you're especially excited to hear on this podcast, just shoot me an email at ffw.calvin.edu and tell me about them. Just put Rewrite Radio in the subject line. Thanks for listening to Rewrite Radio. I'm Lisa Ann Cockrell, back soon with more from the Festival of Faith and Writing 